Turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Can you imagine getting to heaven one day and the multitude of God's people from every tribe and tongue and ethnicity gathered together singing God's praises? What a day that will be. But until then, we're in this world. And the world is likely going to get worse. Imagine if we all had to move to California. Did you know what their governor just passed last week, was it? Have you heard the bill he just passed? I'm afraid to even talk about the bill because there's young kids in this room. I mean, a godless governor. That governor does not know God. That governor is a hater of God and a hater of all things that are good and right and true. Imagine you moving to California. Well, Daniel moved to Babylon. Let me tell you about that king. Nebuchadnezzar made the governor of California look tame. Nebuchadnezzar was a crazy man. He, at least in this chapter, went temporarily insane. He went nuts for a while. He had a dream. Imagine him in his royal palace. He's, he's the greatest man who, who living on the earth. His wealth rivaled King Solomon in his glory days. His power exceeded any other kingdom up to that time. In fact, he was the leader of the known world. He was the most important and the most powerful and one of the most richest people alive. And it could be argued all the kingdoms that would come after the Babylonian Empire were somewhat inferior, according to Daniel chapter 2, than Babylon was. And Nebuchadnezzar was the king at the height of the Babylonian Empire. He is at the peak of his life, at the peak of the world. He's just now getting to a place of rest. The Egyptians are subdued. The Assyrians are subdued. All he has to do is impress his wife and make one of the wonders of the world and build her a wonderful garden. This man had unchecked power. And imagine someone who has unchecked power going insane. You think of couple chapters from now when he turns into a cow, everybody's aware of that. My kids love that story of him turning into a wild beast and lives for seven periods of time out in the wilderness. 
you think, well, he just went insane. He thought himself as an animal. He ate grass. But you could almost argue that his insanity is just as bad in chapter 2. He, there he is. He's sleeping in his bed. He has a dream. He's disturbed about it. He wakes up. And he calls in all the wise men of his kingdom. The magicians, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, all those who have been studied in astrology. The wisest of the wise, he calls in. And they come before him and imagine he's probably, he may be even not out of his bedroom. He's in his chamber. And he's so disturbed, he, he has to have this interpretation. What does this dream mean? He understands that the dream is divinely given to him. It's not like other dreams. And he's not going to rest until he knows what it means. And he can't tell people what, it, what the dream was because, I mean, honestly, they can say, well, this means this and this means this. And they can make up what they want to, for it to mean. And how does he know if they know what they're talking about? So in order that he may know what the wise men, that they have the proper interpretation, he's puts them to the test, and he says, I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. You've got to tell me its meaning, and the way I'm going to know that you know the meaning is that you're going to tell me what I dreamed. Now, that's insane. You've gone mad. You, you've got too much power, and it's gone to your head, and you, you can't get, you don't know what yourself, and you, you're determined, if, if I don't know this, I'm going to go on a killing spree. I'm going to get mad. And that's what happened. In his fury, in his aggravation, he threatened to kill all the wise men. But in this text, we see an insane king. We see an inapt prophet. And lastly, we'll see an infinite God. And it has a lot to say to us today because in some sense... We may be living under insane leadership. And we find ourselves very inapt to deal with it. But we need to come to the conclusion of the story and see that we still have an infinite God. Let's look at the insanity of this king. He has an insane request in verses 1 and 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. This is just an insane request. I want you to do something that I know you can't do. Now, these are magicians and sorcerers, and they're dealing with witchcraft or some supernatural power, but this is going beyond their ability. This is going beyond what they can even conjure up. And much of their sorcery probably was fabricated. It was not true. And to ask them something they couldn't do is simply madness. You can't obey that which you can't do. So it's an insane request. But 
Not only is it an insane request, Nebuchadnezzar put an insane punishment upon the inability of obeying this command. Look at verse 3. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to, to know the dream. Then the Chaldean said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb. And your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from the, me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Now, I'll give you reward. I'll honor you. I'll enrich you if you obey me. Now, that's not insane. That's, that's actually pretty good. I'm going to really, really enrich you if you can do this. In fact, if you can do the impossible, you should be enriched. You should get honor. You should get glory. You should be promoted. You should get all these things if you can do these things. That's not the insanity. The insanity is if you can't do them, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. You're talking about being under, the, under pressure. Either I'm going to be a great man or I'm going to be dead. And my death is going to be torture. I'm going to be torn apart. Horses will take one arm and other horses will take the other arm and they're going to just pull me apart. Or maybe they'll tie my feet with one rope and tie my hands in the other rope and they're going to just keep pulling me until I come apart. You know... Let me ask you something. Is that punishment warrant their inability to do the impossibility? Has King Nebuchadnezzar gone mad? Has he just forgotten that he's asking too much? Not only would he tear these men apart, he's going to destroy their homes, which means their families, their wives, their children. Possibly grandchildren will have nothing left. Think about this. Think of the madness of this. The genocide of the wisest and most educated people in the kingdom. How smart is that? Not only is it unwise to kill the brightest and the smartest people you have. Nebuchadnezzar already put a huge financial investment in these people. Remember, we learned from last week that Daniel and his three companions came and they were going to be educated and eat from the king's table for three years. That's an investment. No doubt that he separated them and put them in their own housing, gave them a, edu a free education, the, the best education that money could buy, and the king supplied this, paid for this, invested in educating these gifted people. I don't know if it was a, the university ranked up to have 100 people, 200 people, but it likely could have been thousands of students that one day could be in leadership all over the kingdom. He had a purpose in educating these men. 
And all of a sudden, over one dream, he wants to completely destroy every one of them. Genocide, the, the best talent in the kingdom. Think about this. What led King Nebuchadnezzar to even think such a thing? We may ask ourselves, what led Joseph Stalin to kill up to 20 million of his own people? It's either 13 million or if you want to add the 7 million that died because of famine and the government's lack of intervention in the famine. But there was over 1 million of people killed in the labor camps because they were political prisoners. Minorities and whole ethnic groups were destroyed by Joseph Stalin. In fact, Joseph Stalin sought to eliminate much of the educated class and went after the wealthy class. What made Joseph Stalin do this to his own nation? And you can look at Russia today and it's still under the negative effects of Stalin's empire. His desire for communism has still affected that country today. What would lead Pol Pot in Cambodia to kill 7 million of his own people? My cousin is married to a Cambodian who fled. Her parents and her, she was a young baby and her parents fled Pol Pot to flee to America. And from the story I've heard, they barely made it out alive. In 1975, Pol Pot sent a guerrilla army and took seas of the capital of Cambodia. He emptied the cities, he pulled families apart, abolished religion, and closed down schools. Everyone was ordered to work, even children. They outlawed all money and closed all private businesses and markets. Doctors were killed, and most people with skills and education were threatened by the regime. Pope Paul was a, was a madman. He was just a madman. I mean, there's a lot of crazy people in the world, but thankfully they don't have power. They're not in a dictatorship. But imagine being under the rule of someone who's great power but is not sane, is not reasonable. I mean, we've already mentioned the governor of California and what he just passed. But something else is just as sickening is the governor of New York signed a bill that allowed partial birth murder. And they lit up the Empire State Building to celebrate the murder of baby children. And they celebrated it. And the governor was viewed as someone who stood up for woman's right over murder. So that can't happen in America. I mean, it's happening now. Mad. Men ruling and bringing forth death and destruction because of their insanity. This is Nebuchadnezzar. 
what recourse do we have when our leadership rules unjustly? Nebuchadnezzar seemed to have unchecked authority and unchecked power. What could anyone do? It was a death sentence and there was no one, even the second command couldn't stop this. He became angry and most of the time all good sense leaves us when we get mad. When we don't get what we want. We have a temporary moment of insanity. We see in verses 7 through 11 that the wise men were smart enough to understand the insanity of the moment. Verse 7, the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. Then verse 9 says, if you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, This is just common sense. There is not a man on earth who can meet the command, the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. You're asking the impossible, just because you have a dream and you want to know what it means. You don't know its meaning, and you're going to kill us because we don't, know it's, we don't even know the dream. This is an insane King who had an insane overreaction. We see in verses 12 through 13. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now listen, it'd be one thing for Nebuchadnezzar out of a moment of anger says, hey, all of you in my room, you're done, you're dead. But that's, that's not all he did. He, he says, I'm going to kill every one of you. Systematically, I'm going to cleanse my kingdom of the educated. All of them. Even Daniel and his three companions. What have they done? They, they weren't even in the room with the king. And all of a sudden, they're going to die? This is an overreach of power. This was wrong. This is the insanity of Nebuchadnezzar. And we could be living in a similar situation if things keep going the way they're going. We need to remember this chapter, as our leadership seems to be going more and more ungodly around us. We see, second of all, that you have an insane king, you also have an inapt prophet. Verse 
14 says, Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from God of heaven concerning the mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. First thing Daniel understood about the situation I'm no better than the magicians or the enchanters or the sorcerers or the Chaldeans. I can't do this either. He realized, I don't know the dream and I don't know its interpretation any more than anyone else. But I'm about to be dead along with my three friends. He found himself in a very difficult situation found himself between a rock and a hard place. He found himself living under a regime that was gone crazy, oppressive. And he was about to be a victim, an innocent victim of the madness. And he knew that he had no ability to give the king what the king was asking of him. That is us in this world. We are sheep. And God has sent us into the midst of wolves. Wolves have teeth. They have weapons. They have the ability to kill us. They have the ability to suppress us. They have the ability to take away our religious freedom, our freedom of speech. They have the ability to drive us underground and throw us into the caves and try to root us out. And we're just sheep. We have no defensive weapons. Our weapons are not of this world. We don't have, you know, there's not a charge for us to stockpile our guns and get a bunch of ammunition. We're sheep. We're defenseless. We're, we're inept for this type of battle. And you say, well, Jeff, I, I'm going to fight. Are you really? You and what army? I'm going to put a barricade around my house and I'm going to resist. You're going to resist the U.S. military? Let's see how long you last. We need to realize that we can't make it out alive. We need to go ahead and surrender that we don't have the ability to overcome a corrupt government. That we can't fight this the way the world wants to fight this battle. We're sheep. What do we sheep do? We come to church and have a prayer meeting. You recognize that you don't have the ability the church is a minority. Christians are a minority in this fallen world. There was never, never, don't, don't be mistaken, there was never a majority 
a moral majority in this world, in this country. Never. We're a remnant. How do I know this? Because the Bible says, wide, wide is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life. And few, is that, that doesn't apply anymore? But a few who find that narrow gate that leads to eternal life. It's only a few, and it's always been a few, and more the min- minority group in this world. And we're going to fight? The way the world wants to fight? No, we can't. We can't. We don't have the ability. We're inept. We're like the prophet. But you know what the prophet did have? Faith. You go tell the king, I'm coming. He didn't have the answer yet, but he already says, I'm coming. I'll see the king tomorrow. I mean, he's first thing, you tell the king, I'll be there with an interpretation. You think Daniel didn't realize that's a risky thing to say? Now, at bottom a day, I mean, it kept him from being killed on the moment, so he at least could live a little longer. But what's going to happen at the appointed time when he doesn't have an answer for the king? He knew he couldn't do it. But that was an act of faith. That was an act of courage. That was an act of reliance upon a higher power. His God, Yahweh, who lives in the heavens and rules over the earth. What he did is he called a prayer meeting. He called the three men he knew, knew God. There's just four of them in this university that walked with God and knew God. The rest of them were Servers of the Balak, the god of the Babylonians or some other foreign gods. But these four men came together and prayed. They prayed for the impossible. They prayed for a miracle. They looked to God and not to themselves, nor did they look to this world for help. What am I saying? We as a church need to pray more. As the day approaches, as the evil increases, all the more should we gather together. All the more should we be crying out to God. Do you know that God, not to get ahead of the story here, but God saved all the wise men for the sake of four? It may be that God in his restraining grace, keeps the state of Arkansas a little more conservative, a little bit longer for the sake of a few churches in the state. For those who are crying out for good leadership, just laws. We should cry out to the only one who can save us. Do you realize that God saved all, not just Daniel and his three friends, but literally hundreds of people because of these four? You see, prayer comes from a sense of desperation and need. You say, why does God allow this to happen to me, and why is God allowing this to happen to our country? 
I'll tell you one reason. I don't know the full answer. God hasn't told me everything, why he's doing everything. Uh, but I do know this. He's allowed things to happen the way they were happening so that we'll be dependent upon him. I mean, imagine, imagine what type of sin you would get into if you had a full pantry and a full bank account and no financial stress. You said, that's what I want. That would be great. That's not what you may need, though. Because when you have all your provisions provided for and you're in good health, where's the prayer life? Where's the dependence? I'd rather be in great need and have a great supplier than the false sense of security that soon is gone. I'd rather recognize I'm inapt than to be inapt and not know it. God allows what's going on in our country and what's going on in our lives so we'll feel our need for Him. And with a great sense of desperation it comes a great sense of, of, I've got to pray. We've got to pray. Do you think these three men and these four men, Daniel, when they hear this decree, do you think they said, okay, let's go pray about this thing? They spent about five minutes in prayer and went to bed. You get the sense that they cried out to God. Oh, they did find rest because they did go to sleep that night. Because that's when God answered Daniel. You see, prayer comes from a sense of our own ineptness. God places us in trials and sometimes just to bring us to our knees. Maybe God places us in hard situations simply to show himself strong. I've said in the prayer meeting, I love the fact when our church has a need that's bigger than what we can solve. I love it. I'm telling you, I love it. And let me go on record to tell you Oh, yeah, go ahead and pray to God. We're going to pray to God. But I'll tell you, you say, well, Jeff, don't do this. You know, what if God doesn't do it? No, I'm going to put his name on the line here. Watch God provide. Watch the Lord provide. Has he ever failed our church since the, the beginning days? Greg, has he ever failed us? Not once. Yeah, we have a great need. <laughs> Actually, it's a small need with a great God. The Bible tells us, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth. The Lord is looking, searching. He's scanning the room. He's scanning the world. He's scanning your house. He's scanning everyone. And it says, So that He may show Himself strong. To those whose heart is completely trusting Him. God wants to show Himself strong. He wants to answer these prayer requests. He wants to show that He is a provider. He wants to show that He can get us out of tough situations. He wants 
to show that what is impossible for us is quite easy for him. You see, prayer comes from not only a sense of our inability, it comes from a sense of God's ability. So here we see an insane king. We also see an inapt prophet. But I love this last point. Finally, we see an infinite God. This whole chapter is not about Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar or the dream. It's about God's power. Look at verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. (laughs) Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. (sighs) The answer. Thank you, God. In this we see the wisdom of the infinite God. Look at verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom. I mean, here you have the most powerful man in the world who went insane. Obviously, wisdom is not in Nebuchadnezzar. And honestly, the wisdom is not even in the magicians, the sorcerers, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, nor in the prophets. They don't know what to do. But here we see the wisdom of God. Everybody else seems inapt to do anything. If not insane, but God is the wise one. We see the wisdom of God in troubling Nebuchadnezzar. Why did this happen to begin with? I mean, there could have been a lot of havoc, you know, avoided and a lot of stress eliminated. We didn't have to have all the anxiety and all this situation brewing up and everybody really concerned and Daniel having to have a last second prayer meeting. We wouldn't have to have all this if. God just kept the dream away from Daniel to begin, I mean, away from Nebuchadnezzar to begin with. But now we see after the end of the story, we see the wisdom of God and troubling this crazy man, troubling Nebuchadnezzar. God was wise in what he was doing. We see the wisdom of God giving Nebuchadnezzar the dream and the wisdom of God in how he uncovered the meaning of that dream. I mean, think of the wisdom. I mean, we'll get into the the content of the dream next week, but just a, a little bit about that dream. He told us in that dream the next three kingdoms that would come after Babylon. I mean, he foretold 600 years of history. And do you think it was simply just so Nebuchadnezzar could know this stuff? No, it's so Daniel could know this stuff. And so that we can know it when we read the scriptures. That God gave this insight, this prophetic insight of the future to reveal to Daniel through this bizarre fashion. It was to show that Nebuchadnezzar that God and not he was in control. Show all the wise men that they're not all that wise. Ultimately to bring glory to God and to debase the wisdom of man. 
You see, God's wisdom is in display in the insanity of men. Now, we don't understand why the governor of New York and the governor of California has signed bills that are contrary to justice, contrary to the law of God. We don't know why. They've gone insane. But we know that God is wise in allowing this to happen. You see, the Bible tells us, the wrath of man will praise me, and the rest I will restrain. And one version says in the Psalms, the wrath of man will praise me, but the rest I'm going to put a belt around and keep from coming out. Did you know that God is so sovereign and in control and so wise that every aspect of man's wrath or anger, everything that brings forth sin in this world is going to somehow work for God's glory, such as Nebuchadnezzar's life. That God is working the madness of Nebuchadnezzar to bring glory to his name and bring a great deliverance to the people of God. And he says, all wrath will praise me, and if it won't praise me, if it doesn't bring me glory, I'm not going to let it happen. I'm going to restrain it. You see, this is the wisdom of God. We may fear what man is doing, men in leadership, what they're doing, and some of the rules and laws that they are passing. But we can rest that God is wise in all that he does. Not only do we see the wisdom of an infinite God, we see the power of the infinite God. We see this in verse 20. It goes on to say, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might or power or strength. Now let me ask you this question. Who is the puppet in this story? And who's the puppet master? Who's controlling what? You see, Nebuchadnezzar may be the leader of the world. But he can't control his own spirit. He's not in control. He's just a puppet. And here you have God just controlling Nebuchadnezzar. What do I want Nebuchadnezzar to do today? Oh, I'll give him a dream. That'll make him go mad. You may think that these leaders have power. They don't. They're just there because God has placed them there as instruments for His own glory. We can see how easy Nebuchadnezzar was manipulated and controlled by the Almighty God. You know, just a few years later, in Daniel 4, we see... Even Nebuchadnezzar, after he thought himself as to be a wild beast, he comes to himself and he says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, including myself. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say to his hand or say to him, 
what have you done? You or I or any other leader or king can go to God and say, what are you doing and why are you doing it? God does what he wills, when he wills it, how he wills it, and only what he wills. And everybody else are left to his mercy. He is the one who is sovereign over the nations of the world. We see in verse 21 the sovereignty of the infinite God. Look at verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. If there's anybody who has power, it's because God says, You have power and I put you there where I appoint you to. And you'll do it until I take you out. And if you have any wisdom or any knowledge, it's because God gives you wisdom God gives you knowledge, and he can take it away. I've seen some smart people become very foolish overnight. I've seen theologians go into heresy, smart ones, lose what the things that they used to hold dear. There is nothing keeping us from going insane by tomorrow morning. The only thing that keeps us upright and alive and eating and thinking ourselves not a cow or a donkey or a horse, the only thing that keeps us going is the mercy and restraint of the Almighty God. And don't think that we have to worry about November. Oh, go vote. Do your civic duty. I encourage you to vote your conscience. But don't worry or fret. The only person that's going to be our president is who God in his sovereign wisdom places there. And he or she will be in that position until God says no more. What a great God. What a mighty God. Now look at his knowledge in verse 22. The the knowledge of an infinite God. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And light dwells with him. Now, he's sovereign and he's powerful. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had sovereignty and power over the kingdom of Babylon. He's ruling the world, the known world at that time. He's the greatest, most powerful leader that the world has ever seen. But he had no wisdom. And you can see what damage such a man can do. Now, imagine someone like God having the power of God, but be foolish. What kind of destructive things would happen with an unwise, powerful God? But we don't just have an almighty, all-powerful, infinite God. We have an all-wise God. And there's no darkness in His thinking. You know, we make the silliest decisions when we make in our uninformed decisions. Think about it. We make, we're most prone to make poor decisions when we make quick decisions... Usually, it's, it's like we get frustrated and we go, oh, 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 just do that. And we don't even understand what we just did. We don't understand the ramifications. We don't understand the other side. We don't understand all the data. And we have a little bit of light and we're making big decisions on little content and then we make the wrong decisions. But with God, there's no darkness in His thinking. 
He understands all angles, all sides, all perspectives, everything from the beginning to the end, from the start to the finish, and all the angles and all the contingencies. There's simply no darkness or confusion in his thinking. And he only, only does what is right. And let me tell you this. He's not just he does good things. He does the best of all the good things. Boy, that's good to know when we realize he's controlling our lives. Next time you want to complain about a little problem, say, God, why? Just go, I don't understand God, but I know you do. And this is exactly what I need. We see, lastly, the glory of the infinite God. Look at verse 23. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what you asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel doesn't take any credit. He's about to go before the king. And he's about to tell the king what he wants to know, and he's about to be promoted to the second command. He's about to be enriched. He's about to be a very powerful man. He's about to be a very famous man the next day. But Daniel doesn't take any glory to himself. He knows he was inapt. He knows he couldn't do this. He knows that he was dependent. He knows he was relying upon the mercy of God. And at the end of the day, he puts all the glory back to God. And I'm telling you, we are robbing God. We tend to do it. I tend to do it. We tend to rob God of what we've done and say, this is what I've done. And we take a little credit. We're like Nebuchadnezzar looking over his kingdom and thinking, okay, this is what I've built. This is what I've established. This is the works and the fruit of my labor. I've, I've done a hard job. But look. But I promise you and I promise myself, I tell you the truth, that on that great day when we stand before Jesus, King Jesus, there won't be any shadow of doubt who did everything. There won't be any like, I'm going to take this for myself. This is something I did. You won't do that because the evidence will be so overwhelming to you. Kind of like in this situation that Daniel could not take credit. He knew he could not do this. No one could do this. And so afterwards, he's going to say, look, hey, I understand dreams, and I can tell you this stuff. No. And we'll see next week, Daniel told the king, I'm just like everybody else, but there is a God who can reveal secrets. There is a God who can do the impossible. God has arranged in his wisdom and his might that at the end of the day, that he'll receive the glory for the, such great craftsmanship of history providential circumstances that all things, all the kingdoms of this world, all the leaders of the world, and all the people and its inhabitants are as nothing in his sight that at the end that he may receive the power, the glory, the honor, and the praise. What a mighty God in a story with an inapt king, with an insane king and an inapt prophet. Let's pray.